down the spiral staircase. <laughs> <laughs> Poirot, he said. Turn page. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> it begins already. Oh, Lord. I might just leave this this extract from an undiscovered Poirot in at the start of this episode. <laughs> Oh. Hark, it's the 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series and today's podcast looks at book number 17. It's 1963 and there's barely time to clean up the blood on the pavement before the next victim turns up in 10 plus 1. To review the book, I'm joined by two persons of interest, Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. And Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And don't forget that this podcast and all the accompanying stuff can easily be found by searching for Hark87 Podcast on your podcast apps and Instagram, social media. Should you feel so inclined, please rate, review and share the podcast. Because it makes us feel all fuzzy inside when you do, like old kettles that need descaling. Also, check out the hashtag LitHappens on Twitter to find other literature, books and reading-based podcasts. And there's a nice little community building up there if you like those sorts of things, which we do. If you really want to help and you know go above and beyond, then you can visit coffee.com. That's K-O-F-I dot com slash harkpodcast. And you can... For the princely sum of $3, buy us a virtual coffee. That's not a subscription service. It's just an opportunity, if you like what we're doing, to drop us a one-off donation, which we will use to help us make the show better. I mean, technically, I can't really see how it would do anything about (laughs) us as people. But if you'd like to make a single donation, then that's what coffee is for. And it's there and it's quite simple to do. So if you do that, thank you. It's been set up a little while and no one's donated yet. <laughs> I was going to say, what have you done with all the cash? Oh, uh, yeah. No, well, you've just been on holiday. I have, yeah. Got quite on a big cruise. <laughs> well, I set that up. Well, uh, it was a long introduction, that. Yes. It was a long introduction. But I set up the coffee donation thing as it's a micro donation mm. sort of site and launched it just as I put out the last podcast episode, which was the interview with Otto Penzler. So if you feel that my travelling halfway across the world to interview someone who knew Evan Hunter really well is worth that little bit of donation, hard work that I had to do being in New York and having a lovely time, it's there if you want to. If not, it doesn't matter. We're going to do it anyway because we're bloody-minded. This book's quite bloody-minded as well. It certainly is. A lot of people end up with very bloody minds. Hmm. Anyway, are you okay, gentlemen? Uh, I'm very well, thank you, yes. Yeah, not too bad. good Oh, Well, let's get stuck into this really grim book. <laughs> but not until we've done the contextual oh, right. 1963 oh, yes. stuff. Elvis. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's usually the... We're only going to be able to use that for a couple more oh, years, really, indeed. aren't we? It, well, this came out, or it was copyright was registered in August of 1963, and I think it probably came out the end of August 1963, but I've gone f- for the... Uh, usual stuff of looking around the time it was registered for copyright it is changing a little bit Uh the types of things that we see in the charts so anyone want to guess at stuff that was in the uk or the us top five um is surf music on the rise in the us yet surf city by jan and dean is in there and Wipeout by the safaris tremendous so yes you're right (laughs) anything else 
1963 in the UK. Beatles, were they? Uh, They're not in the charts at this point, but they have started to enter the charts. They, they were down at number 20, in fact, because they'd With? been uh, From Me To You, oh, their right. second single. Uh-huh. So, well, third single, rather. Sorry. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? Third single. It's an aptly named song. Yeah, of course it is. It's an aptly named song. The week Barry Chuckle died as well. <laughs> Fly me now. If people don't know who Paul and Barry Chuckle are, well, as if, as if, as if someone who's listening to this in Sacramento <laughs> or wouldn't know who the Chuckle Brothers were. Yeah, we'll we'll leave who they are yeah. till later. But they had a catchphrase, which was "to me, to you," which was yeah. near there. Hence my comment. But the Beatles have started to be a, a quite a big thing in the UK. Right. No impact on the American charts at this point, really, because no one was putting it out over there. I think the VJ possibly had put something out by that point. Yeah, there's not much to speak of. But they do hit with some impact not long after this. Well, the number one in the UK was "Sweets for My Sweet" by the Searchers. Ah, of course, yeah. Mm. Then you, you have got Elvis. Elvis is in both of the top fives with Devil in Disguise. Now, this is good. In America, the number nine single was Tie Me Kangaroo Down by Rolf Harris. <laughs> he was having quite the run at this early stage Indeed, of the 60s, wasn't yeah. he? 63, blimey. In America as well. Mm, wow. They love Crocodile Dundee as well. <laughs> that was a little while later, though, wasn't 30, it? 30, uh, well, 25 years later. Once a decade, there's some kind mm, of... Uh, yeah. Antipodean <laughs> superstar. Yeah. So movies. Well, the biggest movie of that year was Cleopatra, which was a UK US co-production. Uh, uh. You know, that was probably the last of the massive productions, wasn't it? This yeah. sort of old school type of historical epic. Do you want to have a guess at any other movies that came out in 1963? He asked them knowingly. Why knowingly? Because we always talk about certain types of movies. Oh! Let's just get it out of the way. Uh, Which carry on? Oh, Um, right. You've got two to choose from. There was two in 1963. Okay, so we've got a basic, we could pick one at random. We've got a one in 500 chance (laughs) to get it right. Carry on camping. That's later, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Carry on. Carry on microscope. <laughs> we're Carry still on, on, on um, uh, Constable. Yeah, no. That's, no, that's the first We're still one. naming sort of um, sort of professions at this stage. Sergeant. You could do, yeah. Sergeant's the first one. Is it? Yeah. The first one? Ages ago, yeah. So not the first one of these? No, no. But it, there's a, one of them's a profession. Carry on doctor. No. Carry, Carry on, on teacher. Nurse. Carry yeah. on nurse. Carry on... Bricklayer. <laughs> Carry on, bricklayer. Carry on. Oh, I don't know. Profession. Yeah. Car- a useful service. Bus driver. Getting closer. <laughs> Taxi man. Carry on, cabbie. Carry oh, on, cabbie. <laughs> Taxi man. <laughs> <laughs> Taxi man. <laughs> and Carry on, Jack was the other one. Oh. Carry on, Jack. That, that's the. Uh, that that's one. the sailing one, isn't it? We're a bit, uh, Nel- yes. Lord Nelson. I think of. so. Yeah. All right. Mm. So that's what you got anyway for the... Terrible. Let's get out of the way. Get out of the way. <laughs> Terrible. Doctor No, was that 1963? That was 62, I think, wasn't it? Well, from Russia with Love, then. Oh, yeah. Well, I, didn't actually, I didn't actually check which Bond Ooh. film was out that... I'll tell thing. you. That's my question. Which Bond film? <laughs> I think so, because I think Goldfinger <laughs> was 64. Yeah, sounds about right. Well, the other films I noted down were that in America... You had things like How the West Was Won and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Excellent. Which is a ludicrous film. It certainly is. And in the UK we had Jason and the Argonauts, 
mm-hmm. was a big hit. Mm-hmm. A film that we all grew up watching almost every bank holiday. Every single one, yeah, it certainly seemed. Hammer, it's got a really interesting output still at this point. The Hammer horror, f- or the Hammer movie films mm. that are out at the time aren't really the famous horror ones. There's Kiss of a Vampire, but it's mainly things like The Damned, Paranoiac, Maniac, The Old Dark House. It's more thrillers than horror mm. off the back of Psycho being such a big hit. Ah. So that's what's coming out from the Hammer House of, well, Hammer movies, Hammer films, whatever they're called. But also The Punch and Judy Man by, mm. by Hancock, oh. Tony Hancock who was a very, very popular British comedian who failed miserably at making films, didn't he? He, he did The Punch and Judy Man. That was his, yeah. like, I'm going to take charge of this film. Make it's it. a really strange film, that, as well, because it's, it's not really very funny, is it? No. And yet it's... I think he was trying to get just, to some sort of heart, some sort of pathos thing, wasn't yeah, he? But nobody but liked it. No, it was, yeah, it's a very strange film with a strange feel to it. Oh, yeah. Never yeah. seen it. No, it's an oh, old yeah, one. I think it's kind intrigued. of it's kind of set in like a uh, like a seaside town, and it's just all a bit. He's a bit depressing, and the location's a bit depressing, and I don't know. It's all a bit. He was aiming for some sort of like melancholy kind of yeah I yeah the it, sad clown yeah. type thing. Mm. Whereas I think his one of his other films was The Rebel, mm. which is a bit more like an episode yeah, of Hancock. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah. That's more successful. I would say yeah. to our international followers, if you've never seen any of Tony Hancock's stuff, he is he was an absolutely brilliant comedian and actor. Hancock's Half Hour was basically the invention of sitcom in the UK on TV and on the radio, and but he just couldn't translate it into the big screen. And yeah, he was quite a tragic figure, really. Let's move on quickly into some other bits. One of my favourite things premieres in... Well, two of my favourite things premiere in the UK in 1963. One of them is Ready, Steady, Go. Tremendous. The pop music show. Excellent stuff. And the other is Doctor Who. I was going to say Doctor Who. <laughs> that starts in the November, a little while after we're talking about. In the in the America, in, <laughs> in America, you've got the premieres of The Outer Limits and The Fugitive. Oh, wow. the fugitive. Mm. It's good. I remember that being used to be on TV. It did, yeah. Over here in the afternoons. Bit of a golden pop culture year all round, really, isn't it? It's, it is. Uh... Apparently there's a thing called Burke's Law, which I've never seen. Hmm. But that was a like a crime-fighting thing with a guy who was chauffeured everywhere. Oh. <laughs> and get out and catch the criminals. So I've never seen that. But I wonder what his law was. Did he have, you know, like... Yeah. His law was, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not walking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take it easy. That's Burke's law. You can only solve crime by being ferried everywhere, yeah. That's... Presumably he just gets fatter as the series goes <laughs> on. Just A uh, quick round-up of other bits and pieces then. Politics and events. Oof. Great train robbery in the UK on the subject of crime. A horrible real-life yeah. criminal incident. What wasn't all that great, really. It was, no. It was quite terrible. It was an awful thing. In politics, it's a very interesting time. It's uh, an area that people refer back to a lot of the time because the spies are still going on. The Perfumo scandal. Yeah, the Perfumo affair and the sort of stuff with Philby, Burgess and McLean as well. Mm -hmm. I found a brilliant fact for America to do with transport. August the 20th, 1963. Now, everyone in America will know this anyway because I bet they're taught this in schools. (laughs) The one millionth railroad carload of lettuce is shipped from <laughs> Salinas in California. Well, brilliant. A momentous occasion. Yeah, etched in everyone's hearts. Absolutely, yeah. It's a bank holiday, I think. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, there was other stuff like Martin Luther King giving his I had a dream speech and well, stuff like that. Yeah. I but mean, a million carloads of letters. No, it's, it's a very interesting, obviously a very interesting year in, in US uh. politics overall. One of the, the big interesting things is Martin Luther King's doing some of his most famous speeches, particularly the I, I Have a Dream speech. And of course, Malcolm X as well is starting uh. to be a big spokesperson at the time. Yep. These positive and popular things that are happening in mainstream politics are obviously shattered somewhat in November. Yes. So, in terms of Evan Hunter, returning to our our author, what he was doing outside of the 87th Precinct in 1963 was he'd written the screenplay for The Birds, which came out that year, mm-hmm. and he'd been working on the screenplay for Marnie with oh, Hitchcock until he was sacked, and he was sacked from that in May 1963 after a disagreement. And that didn't get made until... Well, Marnie had a bit of a troubled sort of beginning because oh. he'd planned to, to make it with Grace Kelly... And mm. people went, well, she's a princess now. She shouldn't be making a film in which she is you know, subject to these sexual things that happen. And so she was supposed to be in it and then dropped out. And, this, and it took ages and ages to get going. But anyway, mm. Evan Hunter was sacked from that in May 1963, having been working on it for over a year. Mm. And a sort of deadlock with uh, Alfred Hitchcock over how it was going to go. And the only other thing I really know is that at some point in August... Evan Hunter was a guest at the 14th annual Cracker Barrel Americana Festival of the Arts Tremendous. in New Hampshire, and he's where he's listed as author, best-selling novels. Uh-huh. Sorry, best-seller novels. Get that exactly right. <laughs> so that's what he was doing in his month of August, 1963. Nice time for a trip to New Hampshire, I'd imagine. I imagine it was lovely. Hmm. Let's get towards this story then. I know it's, it feels like it takes ages to do this <laughs> stuff, but you know, you can't dismiss history so quickly. Absolutely, it's all context. It's another story that received its first outing in the form of an abridged version in Argosy magazine. Hmm. So in July 1963, the book bonus in Argosy magazine was 10 plus 1, illustrated by Charles Gem. I will show you the cover and you can speculate. Well, you could describe this for our listeners, somebody, the cover of this issue of Argosy. Oh, oh this looks very, very exciting. You should say canoe! <laughs> Exclamation mark. Is a canoe plunging down a... Or is that a kayak? No, canoes have... Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Treasure, the hell ships, king of the bikini. Lovely. The man who fits the beauties. Mass murder, 1963. But then there, there you go. So that's a photograph. Book bonus, yeah. Edmund Bain's latest 87th precinct thriller. A photograph of two men plunging down some white water... Rapid thing. Mm. It's very exciting and very manly. Oh, it is. Extremely vigorous. Uh, There isn't particularly any super hilarious titles of anything in here at all, other than the fact that it's got an article called King of the Bikini, Mm. featuring bikini maker Sam Menning, and it's listed in the credits as having nice photos. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. You can see why that's for for men. Well, quite. Oh, that was... Those were the... Quality manly reading. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sam Menning, King of the Bikini, sounds a bit like a character who'd turn up and in, in, uh, being interviewed in a McBain story, I think. Oh, yeah, it could well be. I, I could very totally much see so. that. But anyway, we get on to 10 plus 1 as a novel, and it, the couple of reviews I've found, one is Anthony Boucher from mm. Criminals at Large in the New York Times, and he says it sees Ed McBain in great form. 
It's a fine opportunity for a number of vivid human interest vignettes. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair enough. That's true. And there's a review by Morris Richardson in The Observer from the following year when it came out in the UK, mm-hmm. which says, Steve Carella and his colleagues of the 37th Precinct. <laughs> so he's definitely not actually read it. <laughs> yeah. But he does say some nicely characterised suspects, including a neurotic ex... Oh, it gives a load of stuff away anyway, really. Rubbish. A couple of our listeners have, have sort of commented on what they like about it and how... It involves quite a lot of interesting character development, even for very transitory characters, which, as we've discussed before, is one of his skills as a writer. I think it's, given the amount of turnover of characters in this book, it's really in play here. But one of our friends who listens, who is Andrew, who's asked us questions before, that's Andrew, who's at Much Ado About Nil, has asked us a question and mentioned that in this book, there's a really good sort of pairing up of Corella and Maya Maya. As a, as a team, and this is the book where it really cemented them as the team that he enjoyed reading about in his mind. And whether we had any particular favourites of the duos of cops in this at all. Because really, he sort of hit at the heart of it, hasn't he? Corella and Maya Maya are the key pairing of cops, aren't they? Definitely. I mean, other pairings come and go, but there's not really another one that quite sticks in, in my mind, certainly like that. that... I think it probably takes uh, a bit longer for Maya Maya to to be the um, the main partner as well because you kind of your memory plays tricks and you think it's fairly near from the beginning but it isn't really. Mm, yeah. it's, you're right, it is about that. This is very much a highlight for them. This book because very right. early in this book he, he sort of says, "Well, this is where the other cops were. This someone was on holiday. These right. people are out on this, and and then they're not featured in the book at all." Yeah. He sort of puts them aside and actually features a lot of cops from other precincts in this mm. one. Given the scale of the problem that they're investigating, yeah. well, you, you've got the 65th, the 88th, the 12th. In the in the bit about what the other cops are doing in the, I, I read this again and it says that Andy Parker's on a jewellery stakeout or something. Mm. Right, I swear he's on a jewellery stakeout in most books. He's, I wonder if that's a kind of. He's not mistaking something out, is yeah, he? Yeah, I'm fairly sure it's a jewellery thing. So I, I was I meant to recheck the other books because I, I swear that uh... I don't know, he's sometimes hanging around in a candy store for some reason, isn't he? Mm. <laughs> he's normally, yeah, he's normally on a stakeout somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's um... true. Andy Park is probably the sort of cop for whom the things that everyone else doesn't want to do, which is sitting in a room idle for hours and hours and hours and hours, if not days, um, it's probably like, he's like, yep, I'll do yeah. that. I just eat and drink, scratch myself. Yeah, and if it keeps him away from other people for a long time, that's probably a bonus, isn't yeah. it? So. Yeah, Pete Burns is probably like, yeah, that's probably good for everyone else if we put him on uh, jewellery store duty. Probably is a deliberate running thing, I guess, that he's often on those. We well, must keep yeah. our eye out for that. Yeah, um, Good spot. Well, yeah, I suppose Mayor Mayor and... Um, um, and our Steve. Uh, yeah, it's difficult to rival that, really. Kling, Kling and Halls. Kling, you never often get Kling and Halls together, do you? So normally, it's normally one of those three with, with Steve Carella, I would say. Yeah, but Kling sort of came into it as this fresh-faced young cop, and now we're at the point where he's just nobody wants to be around him. Mm. And it's more or less the same in this book, although we're starting to set up for a future relationship in this book and because it. he's the one who has this string of relationships that mm-hmm. that really he brings into his work life, doesn't he? His work life is so I, affected by who he's going out is with. Is that why that name was familiar to me? Cindy Forrest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it is. Oh, right. As soon as she yeah. was in it, I was like... Yeah, the same, because I'd not read first this couple, before. But, first uh, couple of scenes, I was like, all oh, right, and then choosing it again, I was like, I'm, I'm sure she's uh, crops up again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, this is her first appearance as a 
as a character, and we'll get on to where she turns up from. <laughs> Overall thoughts, then, on this? I mean, how would you describe this? If you had to sort of give it a... Obviously, it's a crime fiction police procedural novel, but hmm. what's it about in, in the quickest possible description terms if you're trying to tell someone? It's about a sniper. It's about a sniper? Who yeah. goes around blowing people's brains out in yeah. uh, seemingly various random, random parts of the city. Yeah. And for no apparent reason, and uh, no apparent reason for a good proportion of the book as well. Well, no apparent reason is the key phrase here, because the film adaptation of this was done in France in 1971 or 72. Mm. It was called Sans Mobile Apparent. Ah. Um, trying to do my best French. <laughs> I realised partway through saying that I wasn't sure if I was actually going to get through the word apparent. <laughs> I was going to go Sans Mobile Apparent. Sans Mobile Apparent. Um, which. I'll probably tell you more. I think I've saved that for the bonus episode. Yeah. I can't get hold of it at the moment, but I've got a man working on it. So we may yet be able to watch this adaptation. That, the, yeah. And that stands for without apparent motive. Oh, right. So, okay. Which is basically what you say there. Yeah. Well, Because that's something that is discussed quite a lot in the, the narration, really, the sort of how snipers are, are something that they really don't want to, to have to come up against because... It's often impossible to to figure out what the reason is behind the killings, and it could be anything. Yeah. It could be nothing. There's, there's a lot of um, resignation to their investigation, really, because they they seem to be going through the motions a bit. In that, if well, if we're dealing with a nut, it's totally what, pointless. What all do, all yeah. this, all these yeah. inquiries if, we're making. There's a, a definite sort of sense of futility to a lot of the the sort of procedural aspect of it. Mm. You can see that see the hesitation that they've got going on when the first couple of victims turn up in very quick succession. Mm. You can see them not saying out loud or read that they're not saying out loud. It's a sniper. <laughs> it's someone who's got the power to be anywhere, pick off anyone. They're, they're just sort of saying, oh, please don't let it be that, yeah. without saying it. But of course it does turn out to be a sniper uh, because they match the ballistics. Indeed. And that's the thing that ties it all together. So after the first three victims, it's definitely someone with some sort of plan. The things that are familiar between a couple of victims that they think might be a reason turn out to be changed when he takes out the third victim, mm-hmm. who has very different characteristics. So that... The thread running throughout this is how do they find out what links these victims? And that comes at probably about 50% of the way through the book Indeed. before the, the penny drops. And then again... Even then, it's a very loose connection that can't seem to have any reason as to why they're being killed, though. Even, yes, even yes, when yeah. they've kind of found Once they've what established the that they are, you know, they are still within not, a group. They're yeah. still none, none the wiser. And yeah, the, the bodies still annoying. carry on Absolutely. dropping after that, even... even even on the steps of the station yeah. house at one point. Mm. So that's when the cops are sort of... In fact, it's quite funny when... Funny in inverted commas. When the one of the characters is killed on the steps of the station house, they talk, it's, they're talking about how the patrolman and, and the cops are just sort of... It's got to the point where it is quite funny because they can't do anything about it. They can't even <laughs> stop someone being shot on the steps of the station house. It becomes bleak humour for them. Yeah. They just try to deal with it. So it's very interesting. But the thing I notice more than anything, I think, in this book is... The spectre of the war mm. hangs over this book yeah, totally. Absolutely, yeah. In almost every chapter, there's some reference to someone either having been in the war. What did you do in the war, yeah. Because they want to know if they were a sniper and therefore skilled. Or someone's family has been affected by the war. That's also a massive red herring because it turns out it's not really the mm. to do with the reason. I mean, it feeds into the 
the approach of the actual murderer, yeah. but it's not really to do with the reason. But it hangs over this book mm. in such a very dark cloud sort of way. Absolutely, yeah. One of the things I, I do when we do this is I note down real world and literary references that I spot. Mm. And there's a sequence where Corella and Maya go and talk to the boss of one of the victims, and he's a German, or he's from a German oh, background. Yeah, yeah. And Maya Maya's really sort of put out by it, sort of finds it very difficult to talk to Germans because of his Jewish ancestry and the fact that they are only a generation away from the Second World War. But the German, who is a an American German, or whose son was an American German, mm. was killed in the war. And he talks about a specific raid in which his son was shot down. McBain's done his research here. He has chosen an actual thing. So he says that in the 13th of April 1944, his his son was shot down, his bomber was shot down over Schweinfurt right. on a raid on a ball-bearing factory. And that was a massive operation in World War Two, wow. where they were taking out all these ball-bearing factories because these tiny little ball-bearings, well, ball-bearings of different size, I presume, mm. were essential to making engines, mm. yeah. which were essential to putting in planes and tanks and things like that. Mm. And they, they knocked out something like 34% of the production capacity mm. for that. But on this particular raid, which was the... 545th Bomb Squadron on the 13th of April 1944 only one of the planes came back Oof. so mm. I, I found it quite hard to find that specific date and that mm. specific detail on the internet now Yeah. so where he went to do the research or whether he knew someone whose yeah, family have been had been affected yeah. by that at or the time I suppose that there'd be a lot more people with first hand sort of memories of that and Knowledge of the day that somebody yeah, died. Definitely, yeah. So in these B-17s, mm. you know, these massive fortresses full of bombs, you know, only one came back mm. uh, to Northamptonshire, in fact, where they were based in the UK. It's a heartbreaking story in the book, mm. but it's even more heartbreaking when you think, well, he's picked a specific thing. Uh. You know, he hasn't just tried for a vague, he was shot down to make a point about his German son mm. fighting as an American, getting killed over Germany, near where the family historically came from. Yeah. All the while, Maya Maya's being like, oh, I hate Germans. Mm. It's an interesting way to talk about the complexities mm. of these different races occupying the same space and Absolutely. what makes you what you are. Which, as we've discussed already, an ongoing theme that's there all the way through these books, I think, isn't it really? Like, immigrant identity in America, it's, it's always there. Yes, it is. And in this book as well, where there's a character called... Sal Palumbo. So the author Evan Hunter, born Salvatore Lombino, puts a character in the book called Salvatore Palumbo, who is more or less, I think, the equivalent of his father. Mm, yeah. yeah. It doesn't quite tally with the immigration pattern of, of his family because his, he says that Sal Palumbo came over in the 30s, whereas his dad was naturalised American anyway. But you can't help but read it like this is someone who knows this type of person yeah. in this type of city, in this type of class of, uh, or this type of neighbourhood or whatever it is. So there's quite a lot of Italian in this book. Yeah, There's a lot of tragedy in this. I mean, apart from the natural tragedy of people being mm. shot willy-nilly, well, really, yeah. there's quite a lot of tragedy with, as they say, the human interest vignettes. Mm. This married man, Sal Palumbo, has just got this really charming little relationship with an Irish lady who comes to buy Aww. fruit off him. Oh, it makes me weep to think of it. It is very touching. It is. Um, and then he gets his brains blown out. Over his plums. <laughs> Pick whatever fruit you want, though. I suspect yep. it's scattered quite far. Gets his, yeah, his swede blown out. Over yeah. his plums. 
Yes. <laughs> I got a couple of other um, real world references mm. as well. Obviously, one of them is that there's a reference to a play in here. Yeah, that was an interesting one. I thought. So, what do you think? Do you know anything about Eugene O'Neill? Not well. I, I did a little bit of uh, reading. I've, I've heard of some of his works. I've never actually seen any. Did the, the Iceman cometh and bits and bobs like that? Is that yeah. right? Mm. But am I right in thinking that the play mentioned this isn't actually? a play it's actually it, that title was only actually used for a movie and the movie was made up out of several one act plays you're oh. right on the movie but one of those one act plays was called The Long Voyage ah, Home it's okay I'm an idiot <laughs> well it took me a little bit of, of, of hunting to find that out as well so because the movie was quite popular mm. The Long Voyage Home and that was made up out of this, this four one act plays yeah. One of them was called The Long Voyage Home. Which the I, movie, I the found movie, movie was made in the year that they did that production, so probably they would have done that production to capitalise on the success of the movie. Yeah, that's a good, good point, actually. One of the things was I found a transcript of the play, because it's quite hard to find play scripts mm. because of copyright and stuff, but typically someone's put it on there. And it's Eugene O'Neill, this American playwright, and he's written in this terrible Cockney vernacular. So it's not <laughs> written, it doesn't just say, read it in Cockney. It's set on this... You know, in this bar, this dive bar by the docks in London, and everything's proper. Oh, white Ah, just noises. It's just Cockney noises. <laughs> they get a little bit of humour out of people remembering uh, Sal Palumbo attempting the Cockney accent, don't, don't they? I think yeah. in there somewhere, which must have been quite. I meant to try and print a little section of it out, and we could have performed it mm. live. Oh, but... maybe, maybe we'll do that in the future. Yeah. <laughs> this play has been chosen. It's got eleven characters in it. Um, obviously once they realise that this is the binding thing between these people getting shot it's a race to try and find out these different characters and where they are and what was going on it's an interesting thing it's the, the other thing just that's slightly oh it doesn't really tie into that but the other reference I noticed in there was Clifford Odette go on um, who I think the the character whose name I'm forgetting temporarily is the film producer guy um, oh Di- Di Pasquale yeah yeah absolutely it mentions Clifford Odette's um, connection with writing a screenplay and as far as I can gather from very quickly doing a little bit of reading Clifford Odette was at one point I'm probably pronouncing him wrong as well it was a very respected young playwright who many people thought was going to be the successor to Eugene O'Neill oh that's um, a good bit of info that but who by the time this was written was very much sort of considered to be washed up and was sort of eking out a living as a, a Hollywood screenwriter and he actually died the year this came this uh, book was published oh wow so uh, hopefully it was written before he passed away because it'd be a bit mean if he was kind of um, writing yeah. about him as, as a bit of a, a burnout after he'd just passed but Groff Conklin the fact-checking ghost here Clifford Odets, the tragic but influential playwright, was born in 1906 and died on August the 14th, 1963, having only been hospitalised the month before. It's unlikely Ed McBain would have known about his illness. That's all from me. Goodbye. Evan Hunter does like to occasionally show off that he does know a bit of the artistic world, the literary, the, well, the plays. Yeah. And I suspect that he probably did spend a bit of time going to the theatre and, and going out to premieres and things. He liked to go out, he liked to be with people. So I imagine he moved, not necessarily in those circles for the intellectual sake of it, because as best we know, he was a guy who just liked having a drink and a laugh uh, yeah. in in the really positive yeah. way. 
But I can imagine you would have known a lot about the art scene in yeah. particularly New York, where a lot of these plays would have been premiered and Indeed. produced. And also working in the film industry and, and screenwriting as he was at this time, I suppose he would have heard yeah. been party to a bunch of these conversations where probably people were bandying names like that. Well, he just spent the best part of the last year and a half backwards and forwards yeah. to Hollywood anyway to do these screenplays with Alfred Hitchcock. So, yeah, he might have been totally wrapped yeah. up in it. Well, I thought, thought that was quite an interesting one. Yeah, there's a few. There's a reference to an actor called Larry Parks, I don't understand, who played Al Jolson in the in the Jolson biopics. Hmm. Don't really understand what that's about. And Cindy Forrest, when she comes... So Cindy Forrest, who becomes Kling's girlfriend in the future. Spoilers! <laughs> she spends most of this book trying to chat Corella up. Mm-hmm. She's 19 years old and she's decided that somehow her charming feminine wiles... Despite the fact that her father's just been shot two days before, yeah, somehow, somehow Corella's just going to go. Never mind my family; it's you I want. And she's described as coming into the squad room looking for Corella, quote, feeling like Heloise about to keep an assignation with Abelard. Ooh, and that was like, right, okay, well, what's this? That kind of went straight over my head, and I thought no more of it. <laughs> well, Heloise was a French nun. Writer and scholar from well, they know that she died in 1164. Okay, so it's a it's a, a pop culture reference. <laughs> yeah, pop culture reference for France, circa 1164. But she was no. The reason people know about her is some of her letters survived that she wrote to this guy Abelard, who was a sort of scholar, theologian, logician. They got married despite the fact that she was totally anti-marriage. She was sort of proto-feminist. In the end, because they were both involved in theology, particularly Abelard. They ended up with her going off to a nunnery, him going off to a monastery, but because he was considered to have brought shame on sort of religion and, and the the approach to monastic life and theological life, he was forcibly castrated. Mm. But, yeah, so I think they're a sort of tragic romance couple who became famous in as one of those histories that people wrote about in the sort of 1600s. Mm. I've never heard of them. Uh-huh. It's for it to turn up... In this, I don't know. It's maybe everyone knew about it in 1963. <laughs> but that's about as much a real-world reference as you're going to get ever. Wow, there we go. So, yeah. <laughs> what do you reckon to how the investigation proceeds then? I mean, by the time you've got four bodies l- littering the morgue, mm. would you not have people on lockdown somehow? Would you? Could you possibly... I mean, obviously you couldn't shut down a city. Mm. I don't think you would do, but the... Um... The, the thing that I thought the glaring, I don't know, what you describe like inaccuracy, is, surely they would try and identify where the shots came from because somebody's having to get on a roof or a, and then try and find out how they got access and who it was, but they, they don't seem to do any of that at all. They just concentrate on I the mean, victim and then interviewing the, relations. There it, may well have been some of that, but maybe just because it's not really pertinent to this, the particular yeah, story. Yeah, just don't just, hear anything about it. It's the kind of thing that you could imagine turning up in a sort of lab report and um, angle of impact and all, and all that stuff and trajectory of bullet. It's the, the sort of thing he normally really enjoys putting reports in, but maybe it's just getting in the way of the story he's telling. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's mainly, mainly a people yeah. story and a yeah, there's, there's grand a who done it and that that I suppose yeah the, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have served any purpose it's for the rather less of the forensic reports and what have you than than you're getting many but of the it, other even if you knew from where the 
say the first four victims were shot, it's not going to tell you where the next person's going to be shot Absolutely. from, though, is it? No, That's no, but, I, I, you know, you'd be interviewing flipping caretakers and, you know, yeah, how, how did so, you get yeah. access through the door hatch and all that jazz? Yeah, indeed. No, you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. So, it turns a bit of a silly cops. Turn, turns a bit of a blind. Yeah, I, I, I think we 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 can assume that's going on somewhere in the background. Because at some point, Corella's basically given what they describe as an army of cops to work mm. with, and you never see anything about them in no, here. No, no. Well, two of them roughing up a probation. Yeah. It's horrible. That <laughs> I hate that thing. I, I I have terrible time with. People getting away with being bad, mm. which is why I'm not a big fan of things like mafia films and stuff like that, because the villains always end up being the celebrated. That chapter, which is just purely dedicated to the cops, from is it the 65th precinct? Wherever that, yeah. Oh no, it's the 12th. Well, it's, it's the 12th. 12th. That one is it. It's it's like this poor sod who's come out on parole. He's got a date. He's, he's he's going clean. He's going he's straight. He's got a, got a good, well, a, a decent job. He's he's doing well. He's just getting nicely dressed up to go and uh, meet this girl. Ooh, yeah. It makes me feel sad. It, it kind of breaks my heart that they make him yeah beat him to a, a pulp and then say he assaulted a police officer. And he's just sent straight back to uh, to Castleview, isn't he? He is. Masterson oh, and Briar Hospital. The rotten gets. Although, on the subject of police brutality, there is a scene in this where they're interviewing the pimp of the prostitute who's killed, mm. the third victim, Blanche Lettinger. And during this, this is Corella and Maya, two of the straightest cops we have in these stories, all told. Mm. Corella's sort of straight as a die. What happens is they sort of say to him, do you want us to get the rubber, the rubber hoses out? And then Maya actually goes and gets a rubber <laughs> hose out. <laughs> That's true. And then That's as he's leaving, like as the pimp's leaving, Maya kicks him in the arse. <laughs> he's like, well, don't have any respect for him. Well, Which, understandably, they know who he is and what he's done, and, and he's been very dismissive about the life of this sex worker. But it's, it's a bit odd that Maya's like, yeah, we've got a rubber hose. <laughs> yeah, it does possibly seem a little bit out of character. I don't know if that just tells you about their attitude towards pimps. or <laughs> um, Well, it, it obviously does. Yeah, I'm sure that crops up in later books, doesn't yeah, it? I'm sure it probably does, There's yeah. more uh, pimps around. Shall we have a look at some comedy characters? Let's lighten the mood. Oh, please, yes. You got a favourite in the book? There's um, a couple. St- my my favourite is uh, Mr Quentin. <laughs> Mr Quentin. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot, yeah. <laughs> Mr Stanley Quentin, or Stan Quentin. <laughs> a man who has no understanding of why his name could possibly be funny. I just love it. An entire scene of him completely missing the the joke. And he's gonna yeah. It, it starts with him taking the Mickey out of his name, and it ends in whether he can sue MGM, doesn't it, for uh, <laughs> for um, using his name in Escape from Alcatraz, <laughs> and such, such as he misunderstood the joke. It's absolutely brilliant because. You can tell that Corella and Maya can't resist taking the bait. As soon as he appears to be a bit of a rube, he's, he's uncooperative to start with, yeah. Yeah. and he's a bit of a rube, and Maya particularly can't help himself but <laughs> just start quipping. And, oh, God, that's funny. That's one of my favourite sequences I think we've had so far of the yeah, comedy characters. It's, it's great. I do like... Um, he's a... Well, he's a, a little bit of a comedy character, the uh, the David Arthur Cohen. Um, yes. 
So oh, it, yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Um, well, he's a comedy character in the sense that he he's, he himself is completely absent of humour, miserable, yeah. and it turns out tragic it's, character. It's, yeah, it's funny. Um, I haven't talked about Tony Hancock already. It's a, a, a sort of yeah, one of these tragic characters who's like really sort of crippled by his own sadness, but makes a living from making other people laugh. Really, it's, the, um, yeah. Ah. You get a few example uh, of his little gags. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so the little printed cards. Yeah, instead of getting the, the lab reports, you get these instead, don't you, this time, which is good. So there's one, two, three, four, four he... little cards, and then one to open the next chapter, which yep. is quite nice. When, and the idea being that he writes for cartoonists, doesn't he? Which I don't know if this is actually how it works. I mean, it's it 10% of the fee and sends. Does them... all the bloody work. Yeah. Well. Oh. I assume that it, that this is probably just another thing where uh, Evan Hunter's got a bit of an insight into these things and just feels like dropping... He'll have met somebody who made their living like that and thought, well, I'll have a character who yeah. does that as well. So basically so. David Arthur Cohen has a job writing these captions for, for cartoonists to write to draw cartoons to, presumably to sell to newspapers oh. and, and, and whatever. This book cements for me, in my mind, the fact that McBain does not like newspapers and journalists. Oh, especially a, tabloids. There's a particularly um, excellent demolition of, of the, the the city's two kind of main papers, isn't there? Yeah. Okay, once once one of the characters has been murdered, a quite high status character, it goes this this fantastic. What's it? One, two, three, <laughs> four pages of yeah. of taking the Mickey out of headline writers and yeah. editors, and how they mangle this story. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the initial sort of report is quite ridiculous in the first place, and then by the time it actually makes it into print, it's gone completely nonsensical. Well, I'll tell you what, Morgan, if you'd like to read the first iteration of it, the one on, what's page 85 yeah. in my yeah, book, and I mean, Steve, if you'd like to read the response to it. Which, where are we? Uh, probably page 86, presuming they haven't stuck extra pages in your edition. Chapter and 9. And we can do a compare oh, yeah. and contrast. Okay. Yeah, so, so you do the first one, Morgan. Yeah, we'll do. The tall man was drinking scotch. He sat by the restaurant window, watching the rush of humanity outside, thinking private thoughts of a crusader who's foolishly and momentarily taken off all his armour. He could have been a Columbus in other times. He could have been an Essex at the side of Elizabeth. He was instead a tall and impressive man drinking his scotch. He was soon to be a dead man. And as it appears in the paper... Fett Alman was drinking scotch. He sat by the restaurant window, watching the Russian humanity outside, thinking private thoughts of sex at the side of his Elizabeth. He was a crusader who had foolishly and momentarily taken off all his arm. <laughs> or he could have been a Columbus in other times. He could have been an he could have been an S drinking his scotch. He was soon to be a dead man. Instead, a tall and impressive man. <laughs> we sort of grew up with everyone taking the mickey out of The Guardian for mm. its, its very common misspellings and mis, uh, mistypings and bad uh, bad proofreading. The Graniad, as, yeah, as it was known. That's, I think it's a really funny scene. That's four pages of... Yeah. Real, uh, that's it's that's Woodhouse-esque, mm. that sort of stuff. It really is. If it wasn't for the fact that it was about a report of a string of... Well, a high-profile murder... Mm that's part of a string of assassinations across the city, that could be out of a Woodhouse book. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. I like that bit. Yep, love it. 
the blue headline tabloid. I, I, I don't know if, if these are directly referring to New York papers. Would that be the Post? I imagine that would be the Post, I think, yeah, because that's the less highbrow mm. one, isn't it? Supposedly. I don't know. I've never read it. I've got another favourite comedy character in this book who sort of doesn't really come across as a comedy character. Well, in fact, there's sort of two here in this scene. Mm. One is um, Professor Richardson, and the only way you sort of see him as a, as a comedy character is they go to ask him about this play that some of these people were in and rather than telling them about the people he just starts telling them about this play and he just won't shut up <laughs> but the way that he's sort of described is that he's described like he's a classical actor so immediately he starts talking like he was delivering this to the second balcony he's pinching his nose with his, his thumb and forefinger <laughs> starts talking to them so they ask him a question about one of these people and he's like I'll get off the mic for this Blanche Lettinger Blanche Lettinger. <laughs> I was doing the actions and everything. Oh. And so, yeah, that's, and they have to put up with him. But this is after they've met Miss Moriarty. Oh, Miss Moriarty's great, yeah. I forgot about her. So, nice Sherlock Holmes reference in this mm. book. So, unlike Stan Quentin, who mm. hasn't got a clue why his name's funny, she's well aware that she's <laughs> called Moriarty and that it's, everyone's going to say, oh, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah, a good bit of repartee there, definitely. Is she the one that tries to get off uh, getting a speech <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, she sort of, oh, yeah. she future-proofs herself, doesn't she? Definitely, yeah. She's like, well, I'll give you this information, I'll give you this address or this phone number, but I don't want to ever get a speeding ticket. And Corella's just cut, so taken with her sort of sort of charm and, and approach and the fact that she's helpful. That yeah. He's like, yeah. He did, does his best to play it straight for a while and then ends up completely cracking up, doesn't he, I think? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a great cast of characters. There's people that you meet on one page and lose on the next page, such as Randolph Norden, who you have this beautiful little slice of life of him getting up in the morning, looking out the window, thinking about what the day's going to bring, whether it's going to be sunny or not sunny, seeing his kids as he leaves and all this sort of stuff. Very fine detail. It was then immediately shot when he leaves his house. Then you have some characters that sort of come in with a, a massive visual impact as one of them who's an actress... Who comes in, and she comes in like a dame in a in a sort of film noir yeah. into the squad room, and she knows what she's doing. It's a cue for everyone to get a little bit overheated again, as they tend to do in quite a lot in these uh, earlier novels, particularly. Uh... Yeah. The, the squad room suddenly fills up with patrolmen <laughs> who have spotted her coming in, and uh, end up sort of wandering up there. And have to be told to take their meeting elsewhere. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but we should probably talk about how this story resolves because we haven't actually given away much of of what the reason is for this event and I don't think we should because we can get through an entire podcast without <laughs> spoiling spoiling um, well I, don't know. I think we're, we're we're beyond that now <laughs> I think so but essentially the there's a lot of sort of psychology talk in this as well. Cindy Forrest is involved in learning something about psychology and abnormal psychology and she keeps turning up with her theories mm. Not doing anything like grieving for a father who no. was shot two days before, but turns up with a lot of theories as a way to try and get into Corella's trousers. Yeah. But instead ends up having a fight with Bert Kling, who is obviously concerned because when a woman walks into the squad room and says, I want to see Steve Corella, and then reaches into a bag, mm. his thoughts fly back to Virginia Dodge yep. and Killer's Wedge. But the next day, Steve Carella's screaming at Kling, telling him off for, for not checking what she'd actually brought in, and, and which could have been a clue and helped speed things up a little yeah, bit. Indeed. Mm. The play programme that turns up in, in the thing. 
But yeah, some characters that come in towards the end suddenly start to bring it to the resolution. So what do we think about the ending, how it pulls together? I don't know. It was It's, it, it's a bit one of those uh, annoying um, Poirots where the person who did it just turns up right at the end and you're like, oh, right, we didn't know about that person. Well, uh, it is a trope of detective fiction. It is. It's always a bit more... It's always, it always seems more character. satisfying when it's somebody who's been under your nose all along. But apart from that minor grievance, I, I suppose it, 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 it kind of su- summarises quite well. I think it's pretty well done. I think, it, like, psychologically... I mean, it's, it's quite hard-hitting. Oh, uh, yes. Um, so. and, We've um, barely gone into the sort of sordid details of, yeah. of the the mental anguish that's caused this scenario Absolutely. to occur. It's um it's taken into I mean obviously it's it's always fairly dark because there's always people being murdered but like the you, you know it's stuck up in this one. It's yeah, it's really taking you into into a darker place than I think you've we've been on most in most of these previous books and it's you know, the kind of territory that that is more often explored in sort of some of the the ones towards the end of the eighties and sort of beyond there, but yeah. it's it, it, I, I think it's good. I, it's it's pretty powerful. But letting the uh, are we letting the cat out the yeah, bag? Yeah, um, But then the it seems it seems a bit odd though because uh, they talk about whether it's a nut and then it turns out it's somebody with a motive. But then the fact that he is then prepared to kill his own wife, the very person that he's doing all these killings on behalf of almost. Well, from you know, a he's, sort of, he's clearly, yeah. he's clearly, totally unhinged. Really, mm. at that point, it's got totally out of control. And there's a very, very tragic moment when they sort of say to him, "Well, they offer a solution to his problem that he just, and he just sort of goes, oh, 'Oh, I'd never thought of that.' Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's yeah. like that's adopting. Proper, yeah, he's just like, just, oh yeah, not thought of that. Just hangs in the air like that could have solved everything. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? But rather than seeming like a plot hole, it just seems like a real tragedy, I think. So a nut with a motive. Or certainly started with a motive. And then I wouldn't say it was unrealistic as well. Obviously, sniping incidents don't occur every day. But in our lifetime, we've been witness Mm. to some stuff happening, particularly in America, of course. Uh, was it Washington where there was a series of them as well? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that was quite a famous one in our lifetime. I remember on the news them saying to, to people, you know, like people were being told to move not in straight lines and stuff like that. Is, is that really going to stop someone who wants to hit you from a, a distance of however far yeah. away you, these rifles someone can shoot a, from? Yeah, highly trained expert with... With determination to and no yeah. qualms about, mm. <laughs> about killing people. Absolutely. But there's another incident in this book, just before we get into sort of scoring it, there's an incident in this book where as it gets towards the point of things being not... Well, yeah, things being solved or something being prevented, a patrolman turns up and restricts a detective because the detective's on observation. It's Maya, Maya. Oh, yeah. And the patrolman turns up and he's like, oh, yeah, what are you hanging around for then, buddy? (laughs) Like, literally wedges his arm up his back, doesn't he? Uh. That's happened a few times where patrolmen have, like, turned up. (laughs) And you can sort of see why this is all focused on detectives, this entire series, Mm. because he needs, apart from needing to have a, a, a closed pen of characters to deal with, he's... He's sort of saying, you know, there's so many patrolmen and they don't know the mechanisms of what's going on in all these things. And they're doing their job and sometimes they're doing it to the damage of other people's job as well. It's happened more than once, certainly. Right, we better wind up Kenneth. 
We got the graph to hand, you know, like yeah. no, I never like scoring without the graph. Yeah, the ticker tape from of oof, Kenneth's oof. previous output has been passed to Steve. Christ, bouncing back from the uh, the depths of the empty hours, <laughs> which yeah. only scored so low we thought because you know it didn't hang together as a book, and we are judging them as the books. Yeah, and certainly like one like third. love, like love has its moments, but. What happened in like, even though it was the last book and I actually do participate in a podcast just about, <laughs> what happened in that one? It shows that that's why it scored low. What, what happened? I, I can never remember them compared to their titles, you see. No, you've made me lose. <laughs> Come on. you made me forget what it was all about. Let's pretend that we actually know what we're on about here. It was the one that kept saying, like, love. I don't know. Yeah. Can anybody remember? It was... Entirely about oh god, please let me put some notes down here. Well, this is it's He needs to come up with better titles, so they've always found his titles. Well, that gives me an opportunity. And it's it does sound uh, stupid that having done this totally unmemorable versus what versus King's Ransom, that's one of the few that you can remember. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Give the boys a great big hand, of course. The heckler, you can easily remember that. Yeah, well, see them die, I would reference uh, one of the comments we got in the run-up to this, which is from one of our long-time listeners, Stella, at Stella Weaving on Twitter. And she says, Every time I read this, I'm surprised by how much I enjoyed it. It's like I have amnesia about it. Mm. It's such a fast-paced, gripping read. I'm like that with a lot of these books. Mm. And that, like love now, off the top of my head, I can't remember. No. But we said this right at the start of, of doing the entire podcast. Yeah. And one of the reasons we've read them and reread them is that you can't always... Remember what's going on. I mean, it, now I've just remembered it. It's, the it's, trigger it's, word is suicide. That, that's it. So it's oh, the, the girl uh, on the, the, girl the, girl on the ledge, the... and then the couple in the bed. Yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, right. See, of course. It's, it's yeah. daft, and people listening to this will probably now yeah. probably think, "Why would I ever buy these people a virtual coffee?" They can't even remember what they did in the last podcast. But that's the point of the joy of the stories: is if you don't remember, you can read them again and true. have that. Either that I... warm sense of "Oh yes," or that not... that lovely thing of like "Oh." I'm... Oh, yes. I'm not sure later on whether the titles become a little bit more relevant. I will keep my eye on that. I think because... they, go, they go in spells because some, some, some of them still don't seem to necessarily... Well, they, or they're vague enough to not really conjure up much, but then some of them are very specific. What does this title mean, 10 plus 1? It's the, the reference to the, the the cast of the play, I guess, 11, 11 cast members. Yeah. Anything else? No. No. Ten plus one. Well, why is it not just called eleven? It's be- you know, is it because there's ten plus the one and that's the doing person it? who's who's innocent? Or you know, I say that again in inverted Two, commas. Four, yes. six, eight, ten. Hmm. Except that actually, yeah. Well, so the, the, the killer doesn't actually know who who is innocent. And who's yeah. Really just yeah. Part of the thing. He sort of kills people who weren't involved in in the actual incident because he he, he wasn't sure. So he wants to just. I like the title. I like the sound of the title. That's it. Yeah, it's it's not one of the the most sort of. Um... It's not as good as give the boys a great big hand. Oh, indeed. But then what, you... we could have an alternative title. What 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 would that well, be? Well, the alternative title is what it's called in the film, isn't it? And what's that? It's without apparent motive. Ooh. Which you can tell why they've called it that rather than ten plus hmm. one. Death rain down. What about well, that? <laughs> well, that's a bit more pulpy, isn't it? That one. <laughs> Well, you know what I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> you get started on that again. Death I have to keep mocking like. up book covers. 
The Sniper. You see, if it was one of the early ones, it mm. might be called The Sniper. Yeah, it, it would certainly would have been, yeah. See, all Although the early the... ones you can kind of remember. Then there's all the killers ones all get a bit confusing. Till Death's about the wedding, you could always remember that. But then yeah. the, some of these late, latest ones are struggling. Hmm. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, and AKA it, The Sniper. Perhaps we should... Have a... <laughs> it's to our shame that we had that blind spot on the... <laughs> the last book that we did. I'm like that. But it proves I mean, a point of, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that we couldn't remember next, straight off the top ne- of Next head. month I won't be able to remember what this one's about. <laughs> Except for these fantastic covers that are burnt into our mind, well, which yeah, we'll talk the, about in the yeah, bonus episode, which will be coming well. a, a few days after Although this comes still out. still be clueless looking at yours. <laughs> that, that wouldn't help me at all. But anyway, I think Kenneth is just about warmed up now. I can see a little bit of smoke coming out the side, but I think that's okay. So I'm going to go over to Steve-O for a, a score for this. Uh, I won't pontificate. Solid, very good, not the best. 73. 73 police shields are awarded by Mr Stephen Royston. And I'll go to Morgan. I'm going to go a bit higher. I think it's really strong, actually. There's a lot to enjoy. We've discussed a lot of it. I think also the darker tone is 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 nice. That's a good change. And I think the narration is excellent. He's the, yes, the narrative, the narrative voice, voice is good. It's got a really that good sort of coruscating kind of dark gallows humour about it, which I think is a feature of a lot of my favourites. Yeah, it's starting to emerge much more than yeah. in the earlier ones. And sometimes it can, even later on, it can still get quite whimsical, and that's fun too. But in this one, it's like it's really fierce, and I I, I love that. Yeah. So I'm going to go for a, a big solid uh, eighty-three police Ooh, shield. Eighty-three. I think it's a good one. Okay. Well, I'm not quite splitting the difference, but I'm going to go for a a three-quarters score of seventy-five. I agree with what you say about the narrative voice. That's very important. I, uh, my my favourite feature is this his ability to do these these little mini vignettes mm. of characters coming in who you totally believe as people, yeah. and then they're taken away from you so quickly. I do think that I don't totally buy that it wouldn't be a much bigger deal. Mm. But then you couldn't really write the book as a much bigger deal because you'd have to have all sorts of mechanisms of people being mobilised here, there, and everywhere, and you'd have to have whole chapters devoted to information being given out to the press and public, and that would be rather boring and not very 87th precinct-ish. Mm. So I'm going to I'm gonna call for a 75 police shield rating from me. And that gives us, overall, a nice, solid 77 police shields. Thank you, Kenneth. Thank yeah, you. Excellent. Where does that, does that sort of get him back up into the... That's, that's, uh, solid, yeah. solid mid-table, I'd say. Yeah. If you've not... If you've... If you've... <laughs> if you've not seen Kenneth's output... It is available on our blog, which is hark87podcast.blogspot.com, and you can actually see the graphical output there from Kenneth's computations and see where this lies in our rating of the McBainiad so far. I think it's time for us to say goodbye for this episode until we come back for the next episode, which, which is called... Which is... What, what it, I always like to know which ones are coming up. Well, Not that I'll remember what it's about. Well, this. Or well, perhaps I might. You should be able to remember what called, the next one's about. Is it called the. Um, on, the Strangler. A, the Strangler. <laughs> is it called. The, the Puncher. The. <laughs> the, the Trousers. <laughs> the next book is Axe. Oh. There we go. Which 
in the UK, we get a better deal because they spell axe with an E, so we get extra letters in a McBain book that the Americans don't get, you see. <laughs> but that's that's for 1964, it's axe, and that's what we'll be talking about next time. And if you listen to the bonus podcast, we'll talk about the book covers and some other bits and pieces, including the adaptations of this, that stuff I've found out about it. Until then, I'm going to say goodbye. Goodbye, as will Morgan. Fairly well. And Steve-O. Goodbye.